Hi, Joel and Suzanne. Hi, my name is Art Wimberly. Hi, my name is Lauren. Hey, Suzanne, my name is Brad. Hi, Suzanne, my name is Chelsea. Hi, my name is Mark. Hi, my name is Sarah. Hi, my name is Nicole. Hi, my name is Rachel. Welcome, everybody, to episode 90 of the Anagram Journey podcast with your Anagram godmother, Suzanne Stabile, brought to you by Life in the Trinity Ministry. My name is Joel, and I, as usual, am along for the ride. As you can tell from the introduction, this is a Q&A episode. We're going to talk about trauma, veterans and the Enneagram, ones, fours, and sevens, and other numbers that share a line, parenting, and how long have you stayed in stress, among other topics. Right now, there is only one plug on my mind, and that is the 2020 Enneagram Boot Camp with Suzanne, Dr. Barbara Ryla, and the Reverend Dr. Andy Stoker. If you were thinking to yourself, I already missed the first two days, I'll just have to wait till 2021, you're wrong. So boot camp is four days. This year we had to do it online because of COVID. So the first two days were July 17th and 18th, and then the second two days are August 7th and 8th. All four days are streamed live and then recorded. So if you purchase boot camp, you have access to all four days all the way through September 15th. So visit life in the trinity ministry.com backslash 2020 ebc or just find the link on the ltm homepage, and there you're going to find some resources you're going to find links for each day's teaching which is man like over 30 hours of teaching and we've just added a community discussion forum on there which i'm hoping that you all will just wear out they're talking about the enneagram trauma family relationships family systems, grief, uh, liminality. I believe in the second set, they're going to be talking about how to manage your dominant center. So many great things. So don't miss out on that. And go ahead and start watching it today so that you've got plenty of time to watch and rewatch all the way, like I said, through September 15th. If you need something to take all those notes in, because you know you're going to want to, the Path Between Us journal is now available. You can find it on Amazon, of course, you can find it at the Life in the Trinity Ministry website, and you can find it on the InterVarsity Press website. One last item at the end of this episode is others on the Enneagram journey. So all you Enneagram ones, answer that question and submit it so that we can uh, share it with everyone and we can all grow together. Thank you all so much for listening, and we hope you enjoyed today's episode. Well, it's good to be together. I'm kind of uh, getting lonely here in Dallas. You know, it's interesting because for the first time in 33 plus years, yesterday, dad said, you know, I don't, I don't think I'm enough for you during this time. You need people and I'm not enough. And I didn't argue. (laughs) And that conversation has never happened ever. I, and I can't, I kind of sat you, around. You didn't say you could give me more? <laughs> no, because no. I don't know how I could. But I've been, I, I'm really um, better today. I've been sitting around for a couple of days, kind of staring at the sky, thinking, well, if I get up and do ABC, does it matter? Is it going to matter? And I have discovered for me that. I am getting too much input from the outside of me and it keeps me kind of whipped up and I'm cut, I'm cut way back and 
spend a little more time with what's inside of me. I read quite a bit, but I'm going to read more and just check in every day and find out what's happening instead of starting and ending the day with what's happening. I just get mad. I get angry and I get frustrated and I, it's not helpful. Yeah. That is one of the good things that has come from all this. And so people know, I don't know when this is going to release necessarily. I assume in the next two months. One of the things that we're happy with is the change makes you realize what you can do without. And, you know, kind of like you said, what's giving you joy, what's not, what you've just done for forever and what can, what can go and what can come. Yeah. You know, I, I think that's true across the board. Dad has been in some meetings with his team about, okay, what, what do we want to not do anymore now that we've not done it for Mm -hmm. three months. Right. And, um, I know for you and me, we for sure want to travel and teach. Oh my gosh. (laughs) I, I love the kids and I love the wife. Sure. And you know, last night I told told you a minute ago when I was telling you the story, I had it as Josie was in bed. Well, we can rewind to 30 minutes earlier and Josie has now she gathers all of her favorite six stuffed animals and things that she needs to go to bed. And so she's got all those next to me. I'm trying to listen to a question that a listener has submitted. Jolie is critiquing the question and the person who's talking. <laughs> Acting like she knows what she's talking about. She's right. like, no, you're not a four. I mean, <laughs> And, uh, and Whitney's, and I'm trying to talk to Whitney and get her feedback about this question. And when all of that hellish noise stopped, yeah. I just looked at Whitney cause I've been telling her, I was like, listen, when the time comes, I'm taking two days, I'm going, <laughs> I'm going to Austin, getting a hotel room. I'm going without you. I love you. We can overlap if you'd like two days, do a day together. And then my two days, you know, something like that. But it's, it's time. One of the things that I didn't think of until just a moment ago that I hope that it stays with me and I'd be curious if other sevens are experiencing this and that is that it, all of this experience has really helped me with my idealistic future dreaming. Mm -hmm. So I was talking with someone this morning on the phone who uh, was asking about future groups and and things like that, working about with their Enneagram journey group and just a good conversation. Nice guy. He, at the end of it, he's like, Hey, you know, what's, what's going to happen with boot camp? Are we, you know, and I, and I told him what I knew and, you know, but I told him, I was like, listen, you know, I, who, who knows? Like mm-hmm. I am no longer, Joel three months ago would have been like, boot camp's happening. We've got a schedule. Why would it not happen? Though government says this, people are feeling this. Mm-hmm. You know, it's happening at this time, which is perfect for all these things. And then even a second step of, and if the first boot camp doesn't happen, for sure the second one's going to happen. And I just said to him, I was like, I don't know. We will see. And I don't know. And I hope I take that mentality with me out of this. You know, we were just talking about what what are we going to keep doing? What are we going to stop doing when this is all over? And I hope that aspect, it's not a negative or pessimistic it's just not the rainbow in the sky outlook that I had on every single thing in the future, which I, which nobody else except for maybe sevens could relate to when I talked anyway. 
Yeah, I I think um, one of the things that helped you is that in a conversation with Joey and Billy and you and me, uh, Joey was talking about how quickly she processes thoughts, but she can't process feelings quickly. And you, maybe a little bit joking, but not totally said, I don't process feelings. Like, I don't do that. And I think not processing feelings is what helps you stay oriented toward what hasn't happened yet. And for me, as a feeling dependent, dependent stance, feeling dominant person, I'm kind of lost about the future because I don't know what it holds. So I don't know how it's going to feel. I know what it feels like for you and I to leave for the airport, get on a plane, go anywhere and teach. Uh, Like we, I love that. It energizes me. I know what it feels like. I don't know what things are going to feel like next month. So it keeps me out of the future too. And I, you know, automatically fours, fives, and nines are kind of not there. Dad and I were talking about when they're going to open the offices at the church. And I got a little whipped up about when I thought it would be okay for me to uh, agree with him that it was time for him to go back and, Then I started making up stuff, which, you know, I'm real good at. And he kept saying, we don't have anything to talk about until we have information. And I kept thinking, well, I have what I think is information, right? It's like, it is very grounding, which I think is what you're talking about, to just have to be right here with what we have today which dependent stance ones, twos, and sixes would be good at because their orientation of time is the present moment, but they're not because their power is outside of themselves with other people who they can't be with in the present moment. And these lessons that you're talking about take time to, you know, no, we weren't talking like this two weeks into it. I feel like it's kind of how we feel about, recovery programs, you know, that two weeks is good luck. Yeah. And a month is much better and gives you a chance and so on. But 90 days, you know, maybe that's what we're not today. 90 yet. We're not. And I, um, think that we're all going to have to be mindful, which is what you just alluded to. If we're going to take what we're learning with us. So, yeah, I think orientation of time, we still don't have that. We still have so much to learn about that, I think. So, so much. much to learn. And there's, there is stuff out there on previous podcasts and yeah. people talking about it. So just got to you know, listen for it. That's the other thing. Let me just real fast. Sorry, this popped in my head because people are going to say, I'd love for you to talk more about orientation of time. You've talked about it a lot. And I think when we talk about know your number, for instance, as going to it as, as going to that workshop and I've said, and I've heard dad say it and Carolyn say it. And let's just say that dad and Carolyn have been to the most know your number workshops in the last 30 years than anyone. Yeah. And they still say to this day, they hear something new every time. And I think that could be the same thing. The same thing could be said about re-listening to a previous episode of the Enneagram journey that you're going to hear something 
that you weren't listening for the first time you heard it. So just an idea. And and that goes for everyone's podcast. This isn't a ploy to drive up downloads for the Enneagram journey. But, you know, if there's some podcast of somebody else that you really like, go back and listen to an episode with an interview and I bet you'll hear something different. I know that that I still do at workshops. Well, and I think uh, we, I think you can only hear what you're prepared to hear. And when you're first learning the Enneagram, it, it I guess, especially from me, because that's what people say about me all the time. It's like trying to drink from a fire hose and it's like, you can't, you can't get it all. And then three weeks later, when you have an aha moment about yourself with that aha moment, you will hear something from before that you didn't hear mm-hmm. before. I, you know, I read books sometimes four or five times if I love them and yeah. they have something to teach me. And I, I think that's a good idea. And to go back to how I opened today, I think it's better than listening to the same confusing, not exact, whatever that word would be, information that's, constantly playing in the background about what's going to happen and when and who's open and who's closed and what's right and what's wrong. I I can't do anything with any of that. Awesome. Well, what a great little opening. I think I I feel (laughs) selfishly for Joel. Joel feels better now. I feel better. Uh, Joel feels so good. He's gone third person with it. (laughs) So. Remember, I know where you're going with this. I am going to that you played high school football with somebody who referred to himself in the third person, and you came home from your job at the hamburger spot one night and said, Oh my gosh, now he's ordering, referring to himself in third person. He, uh, this guy was a really good high school football player in Texas, so there's that, and I mean, really good, the kind of good that. All of a sudden, he's got a new car, and his parents have, you know, the under-the-table stuff. Yeah, he was really good. He was but really good. And I don't know he, if he's good enough to refer to himself in third person. And he did. He came in. Uh, I'm going to make up a name. We'll say Henry. No one I know is Henry <laughs> my age. And he came in. Henry would like a uh, double burger, and Henry wants some fries. With I was like, oh, my gosh. So, so well, funny. Well, Joel's Even though good. it is football in Texas, it was still high school. Uh, yes, it oh, man. And it's still that way. Uh, all right, let's go ahead and jump into answering some questions. Great. So the first question, I'm going to play two questions. Okay, back to back. And I'll replay them for you if you need to kind of hang on. Let me hear that again. And they they came in this way and I loved it. I listened to them and here we go. All right. Hi, Suzanne. My name is Lizzie. I'm 27 years old and I'm an Enneagram 6. I've known that I was a 6 since I was about 20 when I learned about the Enneagram in college. And I've done a lot of work on myself with the Enneagram. And my question for you today is about the move to stress and how long people can stay in that. Uh, The reason I ask is I am married to a wonderful man who I believe is an Enneagram 1. He uh, resonates with a one, he resonates with a seven, and he resonates with a four also. Uh, My mom and one of our best family friends believe that he is a seven who simply spent a really large portion of his life uh, 
in the negative space, acting like a one, um, dealing with alcohol issues, just a really angry, critical person. Uh, I believe that he's a one who now has just put in some work on himself and is acting more like a seven would. I would love to hear your thoughts on this. uh, And I love listening to the show. Thanks. Okay. And here is the second question. And then we're going to tackle them both together. The two questions together. You're going to tackle it by yourself. (laughs) We'll see. Hi, Suzanne. Thanks for doing these Q and A's. I find them really helpful. My question is about the number we go to in stress. Is it common to be triggered by people who identify as your stress number? I'm a one and find myself easily irritated by the fours in my life. I also have a friend who is a seven who has shared that she tends to get especially triggered by ones. I just wonder if there's some kind of defense mechanism at play that when trying to avoid the low side of our stress number, maybe we tend to avoid people who are exhibiting these behaviors. As a single mom of two daughters, that possess traits that seem to point to seven and four respectively. I would like to be very mindful of our family dynamic. Could you shed some light on this topic as well as the lines between seven, one, and four? Thanks for all you do. Okay, so now you can see why we put those together. Before I start to talk about those two questions, um, and I'm really glad you put them together, I just want to say I love this. I love being asked really smart, good, deep, thoughtful questions. So thank you to everybody who sends them. And just because if you send in a question that you don't ever hear on the podcast, doesn't mean it wasn't a good question. So to be clear about that real fast on my end, that there's not a real rhyme or reason. Sure. Like they're all smart, good questions. I always say there's no such thing as a silly question or a dumb question. I um, am fascinated myself by questions that involve lines that you share on the Enneagram. So let's, let's see what we can do with one and seven and four. But first I want to say that I, I think it takes a lot for someone to actually be in their stress number for a long period of time. I it it would be a um, job loss that maybe now, maybe now there are a lot of people who are so stressed they can't get out of responding that way to life. But the two things that keep that from happening are that your default place when you're really stressed is first excess in your own number. And honestly, I think we make more mistakes, more bad choices, and have more identifiable behavior when we're in excess in our own number than we do when we've taken on behavior from a stress number. When I listened to that first question, my I was like, okay, what? I don't do this all the time, but okay, what can I contribute here? And she talked about, seven and one and alcoholism and as someone who's in recovery my time spent in my addiction was not time in one space it was time in excess of my core number as a seven yeah i i think that's typical not atypical and then i think a seven 
who's in recovery would find themselves in one space when they're frustrated about trying to manage their recovery. Absolutely. And the idea, you know, I was telling Whitney, so Whitney and I share a line and I couldn't, you know, you talked about wanting to be a nine. I couldn't be a one for an extended period of time if I wanted to, which, which I have wanted to do. You know, there are times where I'm like, man, if I could really dial this up, my one side in one space and one energy, that'd be helpful here. But it's, but I'm a seven. <laughs> yeah. And so that brings up the, my other key point, And that is that even when you make a move on the Enneagram, your motivation doesn't change. And so motivation is kind of at the base of why you do what you do and why you do it as often as you do it. So you're, you're not going to really get away from that for long periods of time. So when people are discussing whether or not they're one number or another, I think one of the primary questions is what does it look like to behave really badly in each one? And then where do I fit in that? And the second thing is, why do I do these things over in this number and these things in this number over here? And I, I think with those two questions and not a lot of input from other people, people can figure out where they really reside, I would say. Almost all of the regrets of my life, and maybe all, are from behavior from excess in my number. What's the longest that you've ever experienced? Here's two questions. What's the longest you've ever experienced yourself in your stress number? In hindsight, you know, if we had that uh, non-judgmental self-observation in the moment, I think that would change things. But in hindsight, the longest you've been stressed and what's the longest anyone has shared with you? You know, you've talked about the work that you've done in the past with veterans and then there are people with traumatic experiences and, you know, and the coronavirus time right now, what are the longest two times there for you? Um, the longest uninterrupted time for me was when dad had his heart attack. It, it, I was like a bear in terms of, protecting him and taking care of him and making sure things were safe. And I'm a little bit that way right now because I, because I am, but that's maybe eight weeks, uh, both times. Um, and then things look right to me again. I can kind of balance out again in terms of somebody else and talking about veterans and trauma. Let me just say that I think veterans who were recently deployed, meaning that I taught them within 24 months of being deployed. Um, of, of returning is deployed. Deployed return? is gone, but they had been deployed within 24 mm -hmm. okay. months, if that makes sense. They hadn't been home longer than 24 months. And they identify as their stress number because, I think, in part, because they forgot their responses to life before they were caught in 
that circumstance. And, and there's no room in deployment uh, generally for you to make your own choices, number one, because there's rules and you got to do what you got to do and you got to do what they tell you to do the way they tell you and all that. So that takes you out of your normal element. And then being responsible for yourself and for other people takes you out of your normal element. So sometimes my analogies are really weak and sometimes they're gold. This one, we'll see what happens. But um, I've had trouble with my knee for so long that I talked to the doc because I'm going to have a, my nerves burned in my knee and they think it's going to work. But I, even when I get a shot and my knee's not hurting, I don't bend my knee when I walk. And I have to relearn to do that on a recumbent bike because I can't, I, I know what I'm supposed to do. I try to make my foot and leg do that. And this has become a habit for me. I can't do it. Okay. That, that's the question that I was about to ask. And this is where things such as traumatic experiences and returning from, from war, I can't even imagine that I know when I've experienced much smaller trauma, so I'm not comparing myself to those two things, but, and I've looked at myself and be like, well, this is, this is my life now. This is what, and you have to relearn, you have to go back and get help from a therapist or a group, whatever it is, wherever you get that help from to work your way back. Is that a fair way? Kind of like what you're talking about and what they need to do of this isn't how it has to be. This isn't, you can be the essence of who you are. Yeah. I, I think it's not even working your way back. I think it's remembering, right? But you have to bodily remember and you have to holistically remember and I think that's very difficult for veterans. Now, trauma is, I think, a different thing. And my reasoning is that veterans are usually one of a group where there is belonging. So there are people who get what you've gone through. There are people who get what you're going through. And they may not respond to it the same way you do, but they get it. You know how people say, if you haven't done it, you can't understand it. Mm -hmm. I think that's absolutely true about, about being in the military. Trauma generally is something that happens just to you. It, the same trauma may happen to many other people, but you generally, when you experience trauma are, are having an individual experience. And my operating theory is that in the veterans position, you make a pretty quick move to your stress number and you can kind of own that space and that behavior for a long time. Trauma, I think people rely more on their core number and how they think they can manipulate, say the right thing, do the right thing, handle the situation, control the scene, whatever you want to say to get themselves out of whatever they're experiencing. Do you think that for veterans, what we are all experiencing who are not part of that group is their reaction because that is how they're reacting to their new, you know, that it's, it could be stressful to be back home 
versus being at the V that they're a different person at the VA than at home or at the church or in their communities that, you know, they've gone through this experience and now, like you said, as a group and not have a lot of choices that that is where they are. Do you know what I'm trying to ask? I think I do. And so let me, um, I think you're really onto something in terms of, will I ever feel the camaraderie with my next door neighbor, with my, uh, cycling group at my church that I feel when I'm with other veterans, it, it, there's such a disconnect there and you don't you think that it must be offensive when a veteran is talking about their experience and somebody else says hey man i know that's what to be clear like i said i wasn't trying to yeah we weren't liking myself yeah to that experience but yeah. i just think you can't be the same if Joel goes, if Joel's part of a cycling group, I'm going to make this all real fictional. Yeah. <laughs> if Joel's part of a cycling group, then Joel goes and does a tour. And everything that happens before that, you don't just wake up and go overseas. You go through everything that you have to go through. Joel doesn't come back and do the cycling group the same way. That's right. And the cycling group is looking for the Joel that left. That's it. That's it right there. So... Um, you know, dad's, uh, confreres, the other priests who were Vincentian priests, they had, uh, a mission in Guatemala and, um, they all went to high school together, college together, theologate together. Like these, they knew one another among their classmates deeply. And one of the people that he knew well and had actually served in a parish with went to Guatemala and came back. And dad said to him, what's it like to be back? And he said, well, I could still go to North Park, which is a big shopping center here in Dallas. I can still go to North Park and walk around, but nothing interests me. It's like it changes so much. And then with veterans, there is added stress constantly because of the lack of familiarity, which is exactly what you're bringing to the table. They're not familiar with their surroundings and the people they knew before want them to be the way they used to be. And they cannot give you that. They can't. Okay. So now let's, before we get to, uh, being triggered by your stress number. Can you talk some now about the three numbers that both of these questions uh, related? So that's one, seven, and four. And kind of just give us a little three to five minute teaching on what movement looks like for those three numbers. Give some clarity to people. Sure. So um, let's think this through starting with if we started at one and one is your core number. And you are going to go to four in stress and seven in security. Those are crazy moves. The move to seven in security is far more unusual than for a one than the move to four in stress because ones are kind of a little bit resentful when things don't work out and they don't 
get their expectations met very often. And they are people who tend to say, if other people tried as hard as I do, things would go better. And I didn't think this was going to be successful and all that. So when you move that down to the number they go to in stress and they're in four, then it's just an increase of the same way of thinking when things go badly, right? It's, it's, it's not a big jump. When ones go to seven, it is like a bird that's been in a cage that's free all of a sudden. Um, I, you know that I have so many good memories of my dad as a one on the Enneagram going to seven when we traveled because it, it was so fun to watch him be so free and have so much fun and have such good things happen around him. Sevens are not frivolous, and I don't like for them to be referred to as frivolous or a word that is like frivolous, but they are free in the moment to receive what it has to offer them, and most numbers are not. I want to just throw in a real quick thing that's happening in our life that might be helpful to other ones out there. We, our family has access to uh, Whitney's Biggers family ranch house every now and then. And she loves going out there. However, you know, because it's shared space and all that, she has so much anxiety and stress about it being cleaned the right way when, when we with our ridiculous children leave. And so it takes away. She wants to go there less because of that. So now this last time I was like, here's the deal. There's someone that they use to, to clean it up. Let's pay for that. Sure. That way you can go. You don't have to worry about that at all. And she's, we're doing it and she couldn't be more thrilled about it. So it's that idea of you can't go to your own space because you're still responsible for it. Right. So just another, if you're one out there and you've got a similar thing, go this route. Absolutely. I love that. I love that because then as a one, she has the freedom to be free in that space. Mm -hmm. And the whole time, it's not like it has to stop 12 hours before we leave because she's focusing on that. Yeah. I do think that there is, um, an extreme in all three of those numbers, which it interests me in particular that they're connected by a line. Ones are extremely committed to things being correct. Fours are extremely committed to things being authentic. And sevens are all in to things not being binding and limiting. And other numbers are not that defined by a part of their number, I don't think. And so... It seems like just more Enneagram wisdom to me that those numbers share a line because wherever you come in, you're going to come in deep, right? Mm -hmm. And you can accommodate the extreme commitment of each number rather than being thrown by it, if that makes any sense to anybody besides you and me. No, no. Yeah, you said you and me. I was going to say that makes a lot of sense. Okay, now will you talk about uh, the second part 
of the questions. <laughs> Sorry, there was again there was a lot. Yeah. But the idea of being triggered by other people that are your stress number. Uh what's your experience? My experience is that it's probably a matter of level of health. Where are you where are you at and where's that other person at? If I if I go home, for instance, and Whitney is in the low in excess of one and low unhealthy side of one, hypothetically, that's going to move me into low excess one. I'll meet judgment and controlling and whatever else you might define in that space with that same energy. And do you feel pushback? Like, do you, does it make you, um, angry? Does it make you, uh, better than, does it make you feel, um, both, both, both. Yeah. And, and do you have any regret there? In not regret in the moment. So I've, I've talked about this in the past. It's been a while, I think. But there'll be times, and I think this is an example. I think this is an example of this. Whitney is doing whatever. And let's just say that I deem it as she's upset, not in the best space. Yep. I'm, I've made movement, and I'm not blaming her for my stress sure. movement here to the low side, but it's that I'm redoing the dishwasher upset that it's not done the right way, according to me. Yep. And all the while saying to myself, and, and then this is the low side of one, all the while saying to myself, you're being ridiculous. Your wife is awesome. Mm -hmm. You're being a jerk about mm -hmm. this uh, dishwasher. And I've got that voice going and the voice saying, screw that. This di I, We've talked about this too many times. Why do I always have to pack the dishwasher? The other side of it is, if I get home today and Whitney's had a good day and she is loving life, then I go to, I'm not triggered by anything. And I go to full on possibly excess seven space. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> this is great. And how can we, how can I really contribute to, to the great energy that's happening in our home? All right. Well, I ask you to talk first for two reasons. One, because you live with somebody that you share a line with, and I don't. And two, because there is um, that intensity for ones, sevens, and fours. And it's not quite like that for twos, eights, and fours. So I am afraid when I see really strong below average eight behavior from yourself, uh, no, from somebody else. When I, when somebody, when somebody in my life, okay, gotcha, gotcha, who's an eight is in below average or average behavior and they're angry and they're all whipped up and I'm involved in some way, then what I feel is threatened. Therefore, when I, react to that. Unfortunately, I react with guilt because I know that I have treated somebody else that way when I was in aid in stress. So I think, uh, the answer to your question is we are all triggered one way or another by the number that we go to in stress. If it's unhealthy and if we're in unhealthy space.
I think it's possibly true. I think that what you just described is the two eight relationship from a level of this isn't to pat you on the back. You work really hard at being healthy as often as you can. And throughout the day, you do a lot of things throughout your week. You do a lot of things. And that guilt is that just a different level uh, on somewhere on the eight continuum of that's eight space that you just talked about. So I talked about one space where I went to one space. I think you did just say that you do meet that eight energy with a different kind of eight energy. Is that true? That is true. And what it is, is awareness. Right. Like I said, that's still a battle. It's awareness, that voice saying "Yep, you shouldn't be, that's one awareness of this is, again, it, that's not the eight awareness, that's one awareness. That's right. So that's I think right. it's going to be, then there will be four awareness. That's right. And it's going to be different for each one, but I think it is legitimate. I think it is legit, and I think the best way to handle it is... You And you described it. I'm not trying to pat you on the back either, but we're getting a chance to today. You described it when you said, when you had two voices while you were messing with the dishwasher instead of just one that justified your behavior. Right. When you have two, then you're triggered, but you're also aware. Mm-hmm. And that's the road to being healthy. And I think you described being triggered and also being aware. Yeah. You were triggered. Oh, I do this. Yeah. I can do this right now, except... It's that two and eight space of, oh, I've, I've done this to people. Yeah. And, and then it's, I, how soon the next time I start to do that to someone, how quickly can I be aware and stop myself, mm-hmm. right? Just stop myself. Now, what I don't want to get lost in all this is you can't take care of yourself without the number that you go to in stress. Right? Absolutely. Can't do it. Yeah. You cannot do it. And so I, I learned to say no in eight. It's how I say no that has to do with this conversation. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Well, that, what, that was a – couldn't be more happy. Our next question comes from Ellie. Hi, Suzanne. My name is Ellie, and I'm an Enneagram 5. I had recently heard on one of your podcasts, you had said that fives have a real disconnect from their body, and that really resonated with me. I have not only struggled with body dysmorphia and eating disorder in the past, but I also really was able to apply that to a place where I've been struggling with kind of settling into my five for a while, which was that area of emotion, because I thought that I was feeling my emotions but I didn't understand that I was thinking them and I was really blocking out that bodily response to my emotions. And I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit more about a five's disconnect from their body. Thank you. First of all, Ellie, thank you very much for the question. Um, It's brave and insightful and I'm going to start with uh, a spot that you probably don't expect. So just hang with me and let me keep talking till I tie things together. I want to start with the fact that you're the only number that's capable of true neutrality. And that's a lovely gift. But as you've probably heard me say, frequently in Enneagram work, your gift is your problem. 
And that neutrality, which is one of your gifts, means that you can also be neutral about your own feelings. And once you're able to neutralize your thoughts about your feelings, they don't even have a chance to get through so that you're feeling them. So what I would encourage you to do is back up so that the minute something happens that you start to feel a little discomfort, go with where that is in your body and just recognize. So let me tell you what happens to me. Uh, It's just an example. When I feel threatened or when I am feeling a strong feeling, then the first thing that happens is I kind of feel it in my chest. But you, I bet you've seen people who, when they start to have an emotion, they turn red on their neck maybe, or they might have a twitch, or they may do something with their hands. That's what you're looking for. It's just so that you just can tip your hat to, it is in my body, and I know that it's there. Then when you take it so quickly to your head, you have a chance to bring it back. So here's now I'm going to work with all that. It would be really good for you to journal about times when you have um, expressed your emotions unexpectedly. So a day when you cried but didn't know why. A day when you were had some anxiety but didn't know why. Because you're going to have to do some journaling practices around as soon as you have a feeling, writing something down. And it doesn't matter if you write it on a paper napkin, on your hand, um, in your beautiful journal. You're going to have to catch it immediately because deferring to thinking is just your way of being in the world. However, doing is the farthest reach for you, not feeling. And that's a, that's good news because when you can identify times when you have a bodily feeling and tie it to something that's happening, then you can learn when something's happening to allow yourself to feel the feeling instead of thinking it. And it's really hard. So I'm not suggesting that it's not really hard, but I want to give you an end around. I teach for fives that you are thinking dominant and feeling supports thinking. And I teach that that means that when somebody disagrees with what you think, it hurts your feelings. You follow that trail too, to see where you experience that in your body. When somebody, the minute somebody disagrees with something you think, just take a deep breath and do a a run down your body and see if you can find where you feel that. Because you do before you neutralize it. And you do, you just don't identify it. I, I think with a few tips, you got this licked. I'm not, I'm not worried about you at all. Awesome. Okay, our next question comes from David. Hey, all David from Nashville, Tennessee. My question is regarding how one's Enneagram number plays out in various aspects of life. 
I'm a male too, and have begun to recognize the disparity of who I am at work compared to other places in life. Socially and with my closest friends and family, I'm gregarious and rarely meet a stranger and really love a good hug. But at work, where I'm in a managerial role, I am cautious, reserved, and can quickly become exhausted by people. In both places, I can see the motivations of a two play out, so I don't doubt that I'm a two. I just get concerned when coworkers and work associates make comments about me that are in direct conflict with what my friends and family say about me. When I bring this up to other people, they shrug it off and say, of course, everyone is different at work compared to social and home, with some people even saying it's a good and healthy thing. So is it not normal for someone's actions to be extremely different, but still be healthy in their number? Help, Enneagram Godmother. You're our only hope. David, I, I sure did like that ending. Thanks for that. Made me happy. I wish we had played this on May 4th. I feel bad. Yeah. We, we, we're having a hard time keeping up. We got a lot Star, going on. And Star Wars is good 365 days That's a year. That's absolutely true. Um, let's start with this. David, I think there are some places that are tricky. Um, and unfortunately, I probably don't tip my hat as often to how hard it is to be a male too in the workplace and probably talk a little more about the challenges of being a female eight in the workplace. And I guess maybe that's because I think twos uh, are intuitively more adaptable. I hear from lots of male twos that it's like they, it, they can just be themselves to a point and then they feel like the, the totality of who they are is going to be negated if they can't be sure that they've got boundaries around their intuitive ways of being a two. And I think that's challenging and difficult and true and something that I don't know how to fix for you except to say that I don't think you need to worry about the disconnect between how you are at work and how you are at home. Do you think part of that could be when I was a bartender, I think I was the same person at work and at home. Do you think that it's different for different numbers? Like, for instance, he didn't say anything about wings, but let's just say hypothetically he's a two with a big three wing, that that would play, that would play right here. It absolutely would be important here. And if he's a little bit stressed and he's got some eight going on, that would play here too. The other thing, though, that would play here is, you know, I used to be the same at work as I was, am at home. And I'm not anymore. And I'm not because my work has changed dramatically. And I, I don't have the energy to be the way I am at home when we're on the road and I'm teaching and meeting hundreds of people who want to connect on a deep level with this is my life and I need help with this or kind of like you said, it's okay that you're, yep. you're different. That, that is the answer is yes. Yes. And it's actually 
kind of how we are collectively taking care, care of, of me. Exactly. Right? Like y'all have said to me, you can't keep doing that. You you can't. And that was before quarantining and all of that stuff. Mm-hmm. And I so I'm saying, David, I think so I think it's okay. And I think you're absolutely the same person inside and you choose to share different parts of yourself with different groups of people. And there are lots of different expressions of two-ness. All right. And then the next question is from Stephanie. My name is Stephanie and I'm a four with a five wing and the three wing developing. I'm 39 and the right from home mother of a three-year-old and a six-month-old. My grounded assessment is that I am on the whole a good mother, but I struggle to stay patient when my three-year-old tests boundaries or experiments on her environment in ways that lead to waste of resources that feel valuable to me, even though they may not objectively be expensive or require me to spend a lot of extra time cleaning something up. If I don't see it coming, if it's something I've asked her not to do, or if it makes a mess that feels costly to clean up, or if, God forbid, we are already in a hurry, my feelings are often way out of proportion, this is the six-month-old, to the actual event. Yeah, are you talking to you? Do you have insight from an Enneagram perspective on what might be going on there? And for, I suppose, for perspective for you, I do very deliberately let her go and get dirty and jump in puddles and I cover the paper, the the table and paper and let her paint however she wants. And so I'm not always opposed to messes. It's just in these particular situations. All right. Thanks a lot. Okay. First of all, a little cheap having the baby make the noise in the background. So that <laughs> worked for me. I, right. I was like, well, what I kind of perked That's up a lot. Yeah. Yeah. I started thinking about, cause she says, you know, this is a whip when I got to clean up and do these things, but like, I'm fine when, you know, I set it up for the painting and all that stuff. Is it that mundane stuff that fours don't want to do? Like, clean, especially when it's not, it's not timely. You know, when you're trying to walk out the door and you got that mess, that first of all, that'll beat down anybody, but especially for a four, those things, the mundane everyday stuff that fours, you say that fours don't want to do versus cleaning up after the art project that I set up for my creative, beautiful child. Yeah. Um, Stephanie, that's a, such a good question and so honest. Thank you. And I agree with Joel that I think, it's much more fun to watch a child create than clean up after they've had an opportunity to be creative. I tip my hat to you on letting them, letting your child play in puddles and paint and do things that um, sometimes uh, children don't get an opportunity to do. I have an answer that came immediately to me and it's, a, a little deeper than some answers, but I think you'll probably get it. She's saying it's a little deeper than mine. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, uh, well, um, <laughs> it is deeper than his, but, you know, I think you're pushing back a little bit. 
against boundaries that have been placed on you as opposed to boundaries that you may need to put around your children's creativity. And the other thing I would say is that I think fours get their feelings hurt when you complicate their lives because their lives are already so complex. And part of your question had to do with you, you're getting ready and you got to get out the door and there's a mess and you have to clean it up before you can go and all of that. And, you know, if I tie all that together, then you let your child paint, you cleaned up from that. That was a wonderful free paint, fun thing to do. Then it's time to get two kids together and try to go to the grocery store and something else has happened. And it's almost like the painting wasn't enough or the playing in the puddles wasn't enough. And I think that pushes buttons in fours and sevens because they always want more except when it's somebody else's more. So that that's a, a little bit to work with. And, you know, I keep saying to people, if you're calling in a question because you want to be a good mom, you're a good mom. I mean, you just are. So yeah. don't, Beat yourself up and don't worry too much about all that. And uh, pat yourself on the back. You're, um, you know, you're doing all the right stuff, which doesn't mean that you don't have any feelings of resentment or, oh, I don't want to do this. It, It just, it's just, you're just a normal mom. When I was growing up, I remember parents would say about little kids that, Two, like the terrible twos was like the age. I think three is the new two. Also, I think three-year-olds are just difficult. Well, I, I think, uh, yes, I think they are difficult. But I, I ain't talking about boundaries. I mean. That's it right three, there. Like two, two-year-olds, they're still kind of in your boundaries. They're, you've taught them what your expectations are. They kind of know what they can do. Yeah, yeah. three is when they're like, The world this. opens up. The yeah. world opens up. And I think that, uh, of course, like everything has two sides. It's just so hard to keep up with a three or a four-year-old who think they can do so much more than they can do safely. Okay. And then our final question today comes from Beth and she wrote in and her subject is Enneagram one with a very high two wing. I would like to hear your suggestions on how to become healthier in my headspace. My inner critic seems to get worse as I age. All the studying and learning doesn't seem to help. I can so easily have empathy for almost everyone except myself. I try to sit in contemplative prayer, but it feels so empty. I keep thinking that being 54 years old, I should have a better handle on this. Thank you so much. Beth, thank you for the question. I want to talk to you first about things that I say a lot, just to check in and see if you've done them. So the first is, have you named your inner voice? Because you need to do that. You need to name the critic in order to manage the critic's input in your life and in your days. Second thing is, I hope that you've heard somebody say, centering prayer or doing a sit 
will never, almost never, will almost never give you any kind of immediate reward. It just doesn't work that way. It's like you do a sit every day and you'll do life better. And if you don't, then you'll do life okay. And you won't be able to identify necessarily the differences. So I have a practice to suggest for you where I think if you'll do it, you can be kinder to yourself because the awareness that you gain through this practice will help you look at yourself and evaluate your behavior from a broader perspective. And that is to pray with prayer beads, uh, specifically the prayer beads that we use in LTM, which are based on the fruits of the spirit. And you can make your own prayer beads. Someone in Australia was, by the way, we're shipping everywhere. Uh, however, they were inquiring about the prayer beads and I told them, and yes, we'd happily ship them. And then they're like, you know what? I'm going to, I'm going to make my own set and use the prayer that y'all provide. I was like, great. Not, I mean, very, that's very cool. Yeah. Yeah. The reason I, I'm suggesting that is because of my own experience. And uh, you're younger than I am. I'm 69. But let me just say that I, I true struggled with wanting something observable where I was getting a little better. So the beads, based on the fruits of the Spirit, you just pray the beads every day. And then after a while... You just notice that you are kinder and you're more generous and you are uh, more patient and you have more self-control and you notice it in yourself. So it gives you a reason to keep doing a sit and to keep praying the beads and to keep uh, moving forward, even though it's hard to measure that you're really any better. And Remember, your critic is never going to say, "At a girl, Beth, I'm so glad that you're growing spiritually. That is going to be your point of pushback. So um, try the beads. And um, I'll tell you how I found out that I was kinder and more patient and all of the fruits. I, I found out that I had them when I stopped doing the beads for about three months. And I was less kind and less grateful and less. So I hope that helps. I remember those three months vividly. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And this leads us to our others on the journey question of the podcast. If you are listening and you're an Enneagram one, please visit the enneagramjourney.org backslash interact and leave a voicemail so that we can share it with other people. So know that don't confess to something. And share kind of what the inner critic sounds like to you. What's the difference between your inner critic and everyone's self-talk? If you've named your inner critic, as suggested, and you're willing to share the name, you know, let us know. And if there's a funny story behind it, awesome. And if you've, like, named it after your mom or sibling, don't tell us. Uh, But, yeah, and then that way we can kind of share that with other ones and other people who might think that they are ones or... Just after the first one with the fours, the feedback has been overwhelmingly positive. So we're going to keep this thing going and uh, start here at the beginning of the horn. I'd love to know, too, uh, the difference between 
your inner voice that you trust that gives you good direction and your critic and the voice of a parent who was a one if you are having that voice too i'm hearing from some ones that they have three voices now oh yeah and some people have said that you know they've they've confused the parent the voice their self-talk and the holy spirit yeah like there's all what am i supposed to do with all this so well very cool great episode thank you so much for sharing and answering the questions sure um, and they thank were good y'all. Ones. yeah they were good ones and thank you all so much for sending them in and uh thank y'all for listening always and uh be sure to tune in for the next one yeah keep doing your work <laughs>